This week is another special episode on the Irrelevant Information Podcast. Um, as you may be aware, America is, is totally different right now. Uh, it's been more than a week of protests, and many of these protests have erupted in violence, mainly started by the police. All across the country, we've seen shocking displays of violence that just go beyond anything that a lot of people had seen before, but they are not strange or unfamiliar for people who have been following the treatment of the police against people of color, specifically black Americans in this country. Um, in the middle of all of these protests and in the as an aftermath or maybe heightened by all of these violent acts that have been on display by police all over the country, a call has gone out to defund the police. And that has caused um, reactions from all over the place. There are many people who right away reflectively say, well, who's going to solve murders? Or who are you going to call when there's a rape happening? Or who am I going to call when someone breaks into my home? Um, but the calls to defund the police are not new. In fact, there's something that has been studied by sociologists and people who are studying criminal justice reform and all kinds and all these kinds of things for many many years it's just that now in light of how public police brutality has been in the last few days th these calls have gotten more traction but still there's a large chunk of people who have no idea what it means and frankly it scares them and i understand that so rather than talking uh, myself about defunding the police this episode I'm going to indirectly bring in two experts to talk about it. As a special feed drop on this episode is a conversation between Josie Duffy Rice and Derricka Purnell, who are both activists and um, lawyers and, you know, graduates from Harvard Law who have been studying this and speaking about this for a long time. They had a conversation uh, with uh, Zara Rahim of The Wing, which is like an app and a, a community online for trying to create diverse spaces for women specifically, but they had a conversation on what it means to defund the police. And I really enjoyed what they went into. I really think they spoke about it from a foundational place for people who really don't understand what it means. And there's just a couple of nuggets. Um, for example, Josie Duffy Rice talks about how we ask the police to do too much currently in this country. And that's an aspect of defunding the police is kind of limiting the scope of their duties so that they can be more effective at what they're doing. How we give them uh, the police resources of violence and ask them to address trauma. And that really makes no sense. Um, they also go a little bit into police unions and how they're one of the few types of unions who haven't been decimated. And also a really important point that they talk about is how this change or the change that we need goes beyond voting the right way, which is a very important point. Um, and how we need to care about police violence beyond when there's a popular hashtag. Overall, it's a very good conversation. If you are if you've seen the hashtag or you've heard of the term defunding the police but don't really know what it means or it scares you to even think about, I hope you listen to this with with an open mind, with an open heart, and with an open with open ears because um, it's a really good conversation and it's something that we need to think about now more than ever. And I just want to really quickly thank Zara Rahim of The Wing for allowing me to post this on the feed. Um, you'll find links for, for The Wing and for the original video upload of this on the show notes. So this is the conversation between Zara Rahim, Josie Duffy Rice, and Derricka Purnell. I hope you enjoy and I hope you learn something because there is a lot to learn. Thank you.
Hello, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Zara. I am so excited to uh, be here with um, Josie Duffy Rice is the president of The Appeal. Um, she uh, has been doing this work for a long time. She's actually writing a book currently that we're really excited about. Um, and uh, she'll be sharing all, and has been sharing a lot of information on her Twitter um, and in general um, on The Appeal has been uh, covering criminal justice for a long time and is one of um, the best people I know and has been incredibly, um, uh, you know, uh, just important to me as an individual in my journey of learning and unlearning um, when it comes to, uh, you know, just this system. Um, on, on top of that, she also hosts a podcast um, called The Justice Podcast, which is a top 10 in the uh, US podcast um, store right now. So definitely go check that out. Um, so we're really excited to have Josie. Um, and we also are joined by Derricka Purnell, who uh, is a Guardian uh, columnist and um, activist, a writer, and also um, somebody who has been doing this work for a very long time and an expert on this. They are both lawyers. They um, have been studying this for a very long time. They they know it like the back of their hands. I am so excited for everybody to be here to have a very important conversation. Over the past week, we've been uh, witnessing an incredible movement in the country um, uh, after the death of George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis. Um, there have been a lot of conversations about where we look, what do we do, how do we um, you know, move forward from this moment. And one of the conversations that we've been having is, what does defunding the police look like? Um, what does conversations around re police reform look like? How do we make sure that um, we use this moment to, uh, to, to learn and unlearn about what it is that we should be expecting from law enforcement? Um, and so I um, wanna pass this on to uh, both Josie and Derricka to have this conversation. And, and I kind of just wanna start the prompt by um, talking about um, why we're having this conversation now. Um, you know, I, I think that we obviously have seen um, uh, this activity among um, the police, they have been killing people, um, particularly black people at the same rate and increasing rates in fact, um, over the past um, few years. And I'm wondering why it was this moment that we have been hearing more and more about defunding the police and, and kind of just using that um, conversation to, or that question to conver uh, start the conversation. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having us, Sarah, and thank you to the wing. Um, Derricka and I have were recently, she was a guest host on my podcast, Justice in America, and she's um, we've talked about this before. I think I I can say that in some ways I'm a little surprised <laughs> at the, um, the groundswell of support that I'm starting to see on the on the ground. And I think when you sort of like live this work all of the time and it's sort of all you do, like I always tell people, this is like my Super Bowl. This is my sports. Like all I do is criminal justice stuff, and all my friends pretty much are criminal justice people, and it's very insular <laughs> life I'm living. So, um, it's I'm it's it is a little. I, I don't know that I'm the person to be able to tell what why now is the moment. I will say that I think in the past few months, watching the protests happening against the the pandemic um, restrictions and seeing Michigan where armed um, armed and angry white people shut down the state legislature and had no sort of um, in 
no sort of punishment, right, from the from the criminal legal system. And then you see something like what happened to George Floyd, who was accused of a, a counterfeit check. The difference is so stark, and it's been very easy for people to tell themselves for years, well, if we were doing the same things they were doing, we would also be killed. Um, but we know that's not true, and we've always known that's not true. And I think right now really shows that shows that moment to be kind of a, a false dichotomy. What do you yeah. think? Oh, yeah. Thank you also um, for having me on the show. And, you know, I was just thinking, and we actually talked right before the conversation started, Josie and I, you know, the important thing about social movements is that they push people. Like they push people to think differently about the world. They push people to think differently about what's possible. So early, way, 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 if we take it all the way back, you know, to the 1600s, where we first start seeing territories, you know, give dual power and empower white people, white civilians to start policing black people. You know, if you were a property owner between like the ages of 18 and 50 or something, I'm sorry, if you were not a property owner, you know, you were empowered by the state or by the colony or by the territory to surveil Black people. And as police departments started to form, you know, we started seeing dual power. We started seeing white civilians being empowered to track and monitor Black people when we see police departments began to form with that same sort of power just formalized through the state. And since that has existed since that dynamic has existed there's always been resistance to it always and so people for centuries at this point have tried you know maybe we need diversity or maybe we need more reporting mechanisms you know in the most recent iterations maybe we need community control of police or maybe we need more body cameras or all these things that we've been sold on to decrease the amount of police violence i think people are starting to see like Oh, wow. Like more black cops doesn't mean we're safe. Yeah. Or having police from your neighborhood doesn't make us more safe. Yeah. Or watching people with body cameras, that doesn't make us more safe. And so right. we're at a point where people have gone through this conversation so many times over the last few decades. And now we're getting to a point where people start to ask, you know, what if we just take away police funding? What if we just fired cops? What if we did hiring freezes? What if we actually start getting to the root causes of what's happening mm -hmm. instead of just trying to figure out how to make policing better? Because if you are a police department and your primary, you've been empowered to mostly manage inequality, surveil Black people, to reform it is to make it better at doing those things. Mm -hmm. But how about we create a society where police can't do those things because mm -hmm. we've gone to the causes. And so I'm just so grateful at the conversation that's happening right now. It's been a long time coming, but we're here. I just want to also say, like, in some ways, we couldn't have gone more in the other direction, to Derek's point, right? Like, you can't, you almost can't give police more money at this point. You can't empower them more. Like, we have hit the, the, the wall of what's possible in giving police power, and it hasn't changed anything. You know, you think about the, the what what is a phrase about how, like, a democracy everything in a, with power in a democracy requires accountability. And what we've seen is just a consistent over decades, over centuries of law enforcement in this country has never experienced accountability in any sort of meaningful way ever. And so when you, when that is the foundation in which your structure is built, like the only way to really change the structure is to, to just to dissolve, basically to dissolve the whole foundation. Mm -hmm. And I think we've gotten to a point where um, there's, you know, people talk about training, like <laughs> we tried it, 
you know, people talk about like giving better equipment. We tried it. We've tried it all. Every single mm-hmm. reform, small reform thing that could happen has been attempted. And here we are watching a police officer kneel on a man's neck as he cries for his mother in public. I mean, it's beyond comprehension that we would empower the police more at this point. The only option is mm-hmm. to de-empower the police. And the only way to do that is to def- defund them. Yeah. So, and just kind of just yeah, follow of up just really quickly, because I've, I've gotten this question in different variations, like why now? Like why this moment? So in the last, what, since January, February, when the pandemic started forcing the lockdowns, we've seen an increase in police being used to address the pandemic. We've seen racial disparities from police, regular everyday policing transform or transfer to how police have been, you know, addressing the pandemic. We were just like, damn, like, we can't even catch a break during a pandemic. Right. Like, people are sheltering in place right now, and this is, we're still watching people die at this time unemployment is increasing people are expected to live off of twelve hundred dollars when the police departments they got eight hundred million dollars from the federal government in the stimulus package we're stimulating police in the midst of all of this we're watching people you know not have access to masks and protective personal equipment but we're seeing police being funded to go lock up people for not wearing masks i think the, the all of these intersections the what police are empowered to do, the pandemic, the sicknesses, how we've forced them to be the priority response, all the things is, is coming to a head and people are angry. People are fed up. You know, Kiangi Yamada Taylor wrote something, I think last week and just was like, people are going to the streets with George Floyd, but they're also going to the streets to resist the overall violent system. Mm-hmm. And that just has to keep happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the, Josie, you, you did this thread on, on Twitter about basically this idea that people can't even imagine a world without, you know, this idea of being policed. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when they're centering that idea, it's around black and brown communities, right? Because there's clearly not as huge of a police presence in white suburban communities as there are in black and brown ones. Um, and, you know, I, I think that this phrase defund the police actually really scares people because and people being, you know, again, people who can never imagine a world in which black and brown people, you know, or just or have generally benefited from police presence mm-hmm. in their life. Um, can you talk both of you a little bit about what defunding the police actually means at its core and what that would look like at a more, uh, at a, at a kind of um, just brass tacks level? Sure. And I'll let Derica um, talk a little bit more about what we imagine when we talk about defunding the police. I'll, I'll say two things. One is that I noticed that the people who think defunding the police is an insane idea or the people who don't ever see policing around. <laughs> They're the people who police are not actually part of their everyday life. And I, I, I mean, that's not, that's a generalization, but I think that it's really interesting to see that the people in communities where police are the most present don't have a lot of trouble imagining a world where police have less power because they see the level of police power that exists. This con- this concept that it's crazy to think about what if we paid the police drastically less resources to do their job 
Um, it's really only crazy to people who don't have to think or interact with the police day to day. And they think of the police as, well, what if the worst possible thing happened to me? Who would take care of me? And I understand the instinct there, but it's it's actually not, it the, the numbers don't show <laughs> that what the police are is doing is actually exists to serve that purpose. So that's the first thing. I think I think the second thing about when we talk about defunding the police is that we're when it's really important for people to imagine budgets, at least on the local and state level, as a fixed pie. And every dollar you're giving to the police, you're not giving to something else. That's just how it works. Every single dollar you're spending on police, on jails, on prisons in the state, on other surveillance mechanisms, on the entire kind of infrastructure that is the criminal legal system, every single dollar you're spending, you're not spending on education, you're not spending on parks, you're not spending on social services. And when we think about policing, it's a back-end solution, right? It's a back-end. Once the police are involved, something's already happened something is going wrong right there is and there is you're trying to fix something that has already been perceived to go wrong versus trying to prevent things from going wrong in the first place i think um we talk a lot about what you know people who talk about that they can't imagine defunding the police these are often people who can imagine very very wild things they can imagine um <laughs> you know they these are the same people i was noticing it was a one woman who was for years saying that we should sue Donald Trump and get him out of office and just instate Hillary. And I'm like, well, that was a pretty big thing you had to imagine. That was like a, a, a huge thing. Why can't you imagine this? And so it's hard for me to believe that when people really take the time to think about it, they can't imagine this. And I think in some ways it is um, an adherence to a system that they know, they've seen is, is not helping and is punishing so many people um, that allows that not that lack of imagination to persist. Yes, no, lack of imagination and lack of will, I think about all the time, all the time. Because what's so unfortunate is that when states go undergo budget constraints, they're just like, oh man, we need to freeze education. We need to do hiring freezes for teachers. We can't do pay raises for the next five years. So mm -hmm. then teachers have to go into the streets and demand increases for their salaries, demand that students are able to come to school, demand that they have textbooks and computer and technology access. So what's so interesting is that education is also a huge multi-billion dollar industry. But whenever, you know, local school districts become under fire or, you know, they don't meet certain criteria what do they what happens what happens happens to my school district we lost accreditation right mm -hmm. with, with police departments not only do they have multi-billion and multi-billion dollar budgets i mean all of that can still be frozen like it, like these are still people that we vote for who are in office who pass budgets that they then have to vote on and so all of the mobilizing like you said all of the dollars that could be used to go towards you know all this other stuff it gets soaked up in policing and mm -hmm. so instead of trying to figure out okay how do we manage how do we really change police in the last three years I would say that there's been a huge effort for people to get on board with like cut 50 campaigns, which is we just need to reduce the prison population by half. We just need to, you know, free people from jails and all of that. I have critiques of that, but that's not really important right now. The most important <laughs> thing is that with all of these, all of this interest in reducing the jail and prison populations, I'm just always curious about what do y'all expect police to do? If right. we 
keep 1 million police officers, if we keep 18,000 law enforcement agencies and cut the prison population in half, right? What, what are we going to do? What, like, what are we, it's like, it's like cutting an orchestra in half, but keeping all of the people who play instruments on board. Right. It's like, we have to, they're going to be expected to do something. And so it's right. so unfortunate that people usually think about policing as like a jobs program or, mm-hmm. you know, what are we going to do with the people once we start defunding them? And there are all these opportunities for them to move into other kinds of jobs. There are all these opportunities to invest in a green economy, for example. Imagine if there was a huge pipeline program that offboarded people from police, retrained them, and gave them other, you know, other jobs in society where they're not using violence to enforce things. You know, there's just so many different opportunities. And so when I think of defunding police, I usually draw from people who are, you know, organizers who are saying, look, right now, this is the police budget. How about we shift $1 million from the police budget to community organizers? How about we do hiring freezes? How about we start firing police officers who are on the Brady list, for example? You know, how do we really analyze the police budget and say, look, we're spending all this money on, you know, community policing initiatives, right? We're trying to figure out ways how to, you know, get people who are in police departments to be in closer contact with people that they patrol, when actually that dynamic increases the risk for violent encounters. It increases mm-hmm. the risk for, for the, the risk for murders. So what about all the organizers who are saying we need to reduce, we need to eliminate contact between police. We need to, you know, invest in street violence interrupting programs because by doing that we can figure out how to you know de-escalate violence without re- relying on people who have guns right and just to be oh, more, sorry i, just no, had no, no, no. I was just gonna do moratoriums on swat raids how about we don't do any more swat raids because that could have saved brianna taylor's life right, right? There are all these things that we somehow are more intuitive when it comes to like abolishing ice that we need to stop mm-hmm. doing raids we need to stop doing detentions we need to you know put a moratorium all you know deportations but somehow with police we're just scratching our heads yeah i don't i don't think that i think we can do better and i think that really gets to you used to hear a lot i don't know if you if this is still a big thing but like around the time that I was in law school, which was like seven, six, seven years ago, like people would always talk about like, we need to think of criminal justice, like we need to think of this as like a public health solution, right? Like we need to talk about this as like a public health solution instead of punishment. I don't want my prisons, my police to be public health solutions. I want public health officials to be public health solutions. I want, I want, I don't want my police to be social workers. I want social workers to be social workers. I don't want my police to be mental health counselors. I want mental health counselors to be mental health counselors, right? They're not trained. And, and in that way, I think it's worth noting, we're asking police to do a lot. They're doing it poorly. So that's not an excuse for like doing a bad job at your job, but it is a point that like we have given police the resources we give them are resources of violence. We don't give them resources of addressing trauma, of addressing harm, of, 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 of really like giving them the tools to do their jobs well anyway. And then we're asking them to not only like do typical police stuff, but serve all these different functions in society that we basically don't want to fund, that we basically don't want to pay for. And that we're seeing left and right when you talk about an era of austerity that came especially post great recession, right? That we're now gonna see even more. You're seeing in my state in Georgia, every single department, every single sector of the state has to cut their budget by 14% in the middle of a pandemic, 
except the cops. It's crazy, right? My friends who are school teachers are going on furlough. Like I have a kid who might not get in, get to go to universal pre-K because we might not be able to like afford pre-K in Atlanta, but we, there are cop cards riding up and down the street. It doesn't make any sense. It's not just amoral. It's illogical. And it's not how we would, if we were building the structure of a society tomorrow, if all 1,500 or 1,100 people got together and decided they were going to structure a society, we would never be like, okay, so we're not going to fund anything. And then on the back end, we'll just have these people who clearly can't keep their hands to themselves (laughs) serving every sort of social function that is supposed to exist in a healthy community, in a healthy society, in a healthy world. So, you know, just to Derek's point, I just think like we're talking about cutting police right now. The conversation is five, 10%. That's not a lot. That's nothing. We're not like, I hope we get to a point soon where we're talking 80, 90% really, and really rethinking the structure of this country, but five to 10% to give to schools, to give to communities. It's like, this is a no brainer, man. This is easy. I, I, you know, it, (laughs) one of the things I think about often and, and what kind of blows my mind when I, when I read, you know, um, the work that you guys do is, is how, um, kind of protected these institutions are. And I think that that's obviously a huge part of, um, you know, uh, the barrier. Um, for example, um, I think a lot of people are caught up with this idea of police unions, um, and, and police unions very much function like lobbying organizations more so than, than, than a union, um, might traditionally function. And, and so I, I think like one of the things I would like for both of you to talk about, or if you could answer for me is, is how do we kind of penetrate that? Um, barrier, what is the kind of like, what does that look like? Um, and how much power do these um, both uh, unions and also these contracts that are being um, signed by both cities and universities, um, obviously the the, the University of um, Minnesota made a huge uh, uh, kind of splash last week when they they uh, the president uh, ceased uh, the contract with the the local police and and I, I I would love for you guys to talk about both of those things just given that it is so much a part of on top of the federal and local and, and state money that they get um, the, the protection that really is there um, that uh, I think a lot of us would would benefit from uh, understanding. Derica, do you want to go? Oh, yeah, I can start. So the police unions, yes, they feel impenetrable, you know, but I don't think they're more impenetrable than the people who had, you know, slaves, right? Who were just like, no, like we're gonna, we're not going to (laughs) abolish slavery. It's like, how is it that we figured out to do all of what it took to struggle, to have runaways, to do rebellions, to do uprisings? And then all of a sudden we're like, whoo, police unions, what are we gonna do? So I just, I, oh my gosh, I cannot stand police unions. You know, after Darren Wilson killed Michael Brown and Ferguson, to be on the streets and to see police officers wear, I am, I am Darren Wilson bracelets. To see the president, Jeff Rorta, wear, I am, a, I am Darren Wilson bracelets. I was like, are those good apples, bad apples, medium apples? What kind of apples right. are those even, right? It's right. To, to see Most that. of them haven't killed anybody, but not that's yet. not a good apple. Right. Oh my gosh. So yes, I we Josie said imagination and I'm saying adding will, imagination and will. So 
whatever feels in, impenetrable through struggle, right? Through resistance, we can penetrate. We that's that's it. We have to first enter the conversation with that, right? And so I am I'm not sure how this is gonna sound, but when moments like this happen and people, you know, want to know what's the alternative, what do we do? Asking that question broadly is just so, it can feel overwhelming because lots of time what that means is that you're sending out that question to Twitter or to a chat box or to a Facebook conversation. And then you're inviting all of these different answers of national responses and different ideas. I think the most important thing that people can do is care about police violence before someone is killed after someone is killed and during the protest. Mm -hmm. And so if you're interested about the alternative starts and stop while there's a popular hashtag, that first has to be addressed. The second thing I think people should do is if you care about police violence, please join an organization that is working on you know, penetrating um, police unions and other issues of police violence or support one, either financially, volunteer or with your time preferably a local one but if not if you are in the middle of Iowa and there is not a BYP 100 throwing down there for some reason <laughs> figure out how to support BYP 100 in a different city but also you can be the change you can be the person don't wait for people to show up and protest and demand action for something you care about my bad it looks like there is a Des Moines BLM my, my bad thank you <laughs> yes Okay, so yes, yeah, so please, it's it's not about waiting until we see a video of a police officer kneeling to someone's back. That pulls you into the conversation, but it's going to be up to you for months. What are you going to be doing in September? Where are you going to be in October? Where are you going to be in November when there's no viral hashtag? Will you be calling in to the budget meetings? Will you be showing up? Mm -hmm. You know, will you be joining these organizations who are thinking about policing and abolition very differently? Like those are decisions that you have to make and we can't provide you with an alternative. You have to join us in creating it. Yeah, I want to say two things about that. One is that it's interesting the conversation around police unions, right? Because if you look at the history of unions in this country for the past 30 years, the unions have been decimated. I mean, really destroyed. We had like a fairly solid union base. There's like a whole labor history movement here that I'm not the most equipped person to talk about, but like most unions in this country basically have no power anymore. And yet police unions have power. Police unions, police don't have power because of police unions. Police unions have power because of police. Police unions have power because of the culture that we've created that prizes law enforcement above all other, other things. And the idea that like police unions themselves created this power as if we're not constantly, people in office aren't constantly handing that power to them is just inaccurate. Tomorrow, police unions could have no power. People could tell them no, it is possible. They're telling other unions no, they're telling nurses unions no in the middle of the pandemic, right? They're telling janitors unions no. We're seeing public other public unions have their pensions. There are no more pensions in, in the state of Georgia unless you're a cop, right? Like we know that there's typically no problem in telling the police union no. And the problem is that people won't do that. It's not actually, I think, fundamentally with the union. I mean, the unions are disasters and full of awful, awful leaders, but they would be, they could be irrelevant and they're not. And the reason they're not irrelevant is because people, the people that we elect continue to give them power, which goes to Derek's point. If you want to see change here, that's the shift, right? That's the necessary shift. The second thing 
I'll say is that there's pretty high, when I started covering, this is a different issue, but when I started covering prosecutors five years ago, nobody was covering prosecutors and there wasn't a lot of talk about them. And even in five years, we've seen major changes in that field. We haven't seen enough changes in that field. And I don't want to pretend like the victory is here, but I mean that like the ROI on focusing on these people is actually probably higher than you think. Going to the community meeting and bringing 10 of your friends scares the shit out of your local city council. It, li- it really does. Okay. Like it doesn't mean everything changes tomorrow, but when there's so little civic engagement, especially by people of our generation at, at stuff like this, at local stuff, it makes a big difference when you, when you write the article, when you have the protest, when you focus. And it doesn't mean like not not all we're not going to do everything tomorrow right this is a long fight but it does mean that we can imagine a world in which someone make decides the calculus it's actually not worth it for me to support the police union this time it's not worth it for me to take this donation it's not worth it for me to take this meeting it's not worth it for me to defend this guy you saw it in Minneapolis like they weren't going to charge that dude he was going to sit at home on sit he wasn't going to be fired he wasn't going to get charged we, we know exactly how this is going to go. Do I think that the ultimate goal is just to get these people prosecuted? No, not at all. And I think there's probably a real conversation to be had about how we frame these goals at all. But in Minnesota, Minneapolis, when that's what people were marching for on the streets, it that's where we are now. That means something, right? And so I just remind people that you can focus on Donald Trump, and I mean, we should, right? But The amount of return on your investment one individual gets on focusing on Donald Trump is drastically smaller than the amount of return on investment. Can you, Josie, while you're on that topic, can you actually give us like for like I think again as as um, folks who are entering into kind of engaging uh, in politics on a more kind of local level are trying to understand like who holds what power? Um, Mm -hmm. Is it the mayor? Is it the comptroller? Is it your city council member? Mm -hmm. Is it your congressperson? So can you kind of break down in in kind of more general terms like what are the uh, uh, who are the people that we should really be keeping the heat on? Um, and, um, you know, it, it, as you just said, like, sure, it's fine. I think one thing that I've been seeing a lot is, is during in, in the last week, um, you know, everybody being like, are you pissed about what happened, you know, in, in Minneapolis? Are you vote this November? And it's like, well, historically speaking, voting has not resulted in the liberation of, you know, anybody. Right. And so, so, you know, and, and again, I've worked on multiple campaigns. I've worked on, you know, I, I, this is my work, but to, to, to act like voting is some sort of, you know, end all solution to what is happening to black people, um, has been consistently happening to black people, um, is, is, um, you know, I, I think just a, uh, you know, just bad point. So, so I guess like, how do we really kind of just like reshift how we're thinking about the people that we should be focusing our energy on? Yeah, I'll just say briefly, and then I'll let Derica because I think she probably knows, has a different, uh, more to add on this than I do. But um, I mean, I say all the time, prosecutors are most, the most powerful people in the criminal justice system. They shape a lot of what happens in a local criminal justice system. So I obviously beat the prosecutor drum all the time. You should know who your local DA is. You should push them on policy. You should keep an eye on them and make sure that just because you elect someone who says they're good, that they actually you know, make relatively good decisions. Um, 
I also think it's worth remembering that prosecutors, even the best prosecutors, the prosecutors that like I think are doing the best possible work as a prosecutor right now are still putting people in prison every single day. So the idea that these people are going to lead us to the promised land <laughs> is inaccurate, but they're harm reduction, right? And harm reduction is a real ass thing, right? Like when you're talking about solutions, there is the imagine the world we could have and the how do we stop the bleeding right now? And that, and prosecutors are part of the how we stop the bleeding right now. Your mayor typically elects your police chief. And so, I'm sorry, your mayor typically appoints your police chief. And so who you choose for mayor has a lot of power over who gets to be the police chief and pushing your mayor on whether if you have a bad police chief, pushing on them to fire them, which they can do pretty much overnight is huge. Sometimes after the city council's permission or whatever, but like it's, you know, understanding that you don't actually direct elect, you don't actually choose the person who runs the police, your mayor does should make you think twice about who you elect for mayor. And then the last one I'll say is like a lot of the country actually is, is most of the cops are sheriffs, which is a county level thing, not a city level thing. The details here are not like super crucial, but they're crucial to understand that you do elect your sheriff, right? And sheriffs tend to be even worse than your local police chief um, for political reasons, right? And so um, understanding who's on the ballot, your judges, your like, I, you know, Voting is hygiene, right? Like voting is like brushing your teeth. Like you need to brush your teeth every morning, like wash your face, take a shower. But like that doesn't make you a fully formed person. <laughs> you like civic engagement is a con I'm quoting a friend when I say that. I don't want to pretend that I invented it, but like it's I really like that phrase because he says that a lot and I think it's incredibly intelligent. It's really reminding you that you need to vote. You need to like show up and vote. I, I think you need to vote. Even if you vote for a third party, nobody just put your name on the ballot, whatever. Like you, like I, I find voting to be, I grew up in a family where voting is like what you do, but the idea that that's where your civic engagement begins and stops just doesn't add up to me. And, and so when you think about what power voting has, it's like if you interviewed for a job and you were like, yeah, I brush my teeth every morning. Are you going to get that job? No, you're not. Like that's not enough to like be seen as an adult, right? And so when you think about what civic engagement means, what you owe to the people who don't have the power and resources that you have, it means a constant understanding and learning process about what the people you're giving power to do. There is no democracy without accountability and accountability is a daily, daily practice. Like, and, it's, and it doesn't have to take all the time, you know, put out a Google alert for your local police chief, like put out, like ask some questions, talk to us, like email us, right? Like we, there are a lot of people with resources. It's a matter of understanding where these kind of parts all fit together. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, once you vote, how you engage with your, you know, with your electeds is 100% connected to how they perform. And so if you, if they're not hearing from anybody, I mean, as Josie, you know, the, the point you were making earlier, how much they hear from you actually has a larger impact than we realize. I think a lot of the times people think like these calls, these emails, these showing up at meetings, like they'll do whatever they want. It actually has worked. Um, and so I encourage you all to, to, to make sure you just um, continue to uh, put pressure on, on these folks and, and also uh, vote smart. Um, and so um, one, one question I have is, is um, and, and this is coming up a lot um, in, in Q&A, is just about like 
I think we talked a little bit about, again, like what the process of defunding the police looks like. Can we um, fast forward a little bit into like imagine a world in which this happens? Um, what does society look like? Um, and, and, you know, again, uh, uh, just imagining an incredible world in which we're able to raise our children in a world that looks like this. What does that look like? And can you illustrate that a little bit for people um, in terms of what the funds, you know, how funding would work? Um, what is it that people who are police now would do? Um, and um, how do we how do we kind of uh, illustrate that for folks who, who really, again, can't imagine um, to the earlier point that we were making? Uh, yeah, I can I can try. Um, I can I can talk about what my vision, you know, looks like. But like I tried to emphasize before, I think the most important thing is not waiting for someone to tell you like what your dreams are, but to really try to be in conversation with other people who are dreaming and imagining together. And that's what you're working for. And that typically happens like in your families or with your friends or in local communities. You know, yesterday I did an exercise on Twitter just out of curiosity and on Facebook and on Instagram. So those are like three different audiences. Like my Facebook is like mostly like my friends, families, people I went to college or law school with, whatever. Um, and then Twitter is just like whoever wants to respond. <laughs> and so I asked, you know, what would, if you could fund anything, something, anything, instead of police, what would you find? And all of a sudden, all of these, like, people, at least on the Facebook one, people who four years ago were just like, well, what about the good apples? We're just, like, giving me lists, lists, lists. We can fund education. We can fund mental health services. We can fund after-school programs. Someone was like, marijuana forms. And I was like, all right, cool. That's what you want to do. I'm not about to get in the way of your dreams, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, like, I could just read, you know, what people have already shared, because I was just so, so inspired. So I think it depends on how you view police. So if you view police as, you know, an entity that's empowered by the state to use, vo to use violence, to mostly manage inequality, then I would start my imagination with, okay, how do we undo inequality? Mm -hmm. It's not just about whether individual cops are good or bad. It's about what the job, you know, if you think that, you know, most um, police officers like do the right thing, you should ask yourself, what's the right thing? Because most police officers arrest poor people. That's what they do. You know, 10 million arrests every year. Most of the people who are arrested and rearrested have incomes less than $10,000 a year. That's their income. So if you think most of the good cops are like doing the right thing and the right thing is mostly managing inequality and locking up people who are poor homeless have addictions like that's what your imagination is going to lead you but if we think about okay well how do we undo an, an unequal society if we're afraid that people are going to get killed you know maybe we should ask why do people kill people because everyone doesn't kill people for the same reasons. Like everyone's not even a murderer for the same reason. There are people who are murdered because they're homophobic. Well, having police doesn't undermine homophobia in the United States. It just locks up people who are homophobic, puts them in prison, and then they re-enter society. And the homophobia always stays. If people are killing people because they're transphobic, having police officers doesn't stop transphobia. If anything, people who are trans and people who are gay report police violence. They, they report harassment from police officers. So police actually beget more homophobia and beget more sexual violence against people, right? 
So it's like, well, how can we start working through a society that's less homophobic, less patriarchal? How do we undermine rape culture? We haven't locking up people who are convicted or who have um, been accused of committing rape does not undermine rape culture. It can actually increase rape culture. So do we care about, you know, just punishing people and using police as our personal, like, go get this person? Or are we really trying to move towards a society that asks, what kind of people do we want to be? What kind of, what, I have two kids, Juice and Garvey. The oldest one is six. He um, he has had a, a police analysis because he basically grew up on the streets of Ferguson. So he, you can ask him, you know, what do you think about police? He's just like, I don't like what they do. They put people in jail. You know, this all started because he also tried to put his dinosaur in a jail. And I was like, what did the dinosaur do? He's like, he tried to eat another dinosaur. And I was like, cannibalism is messed up. I'm not really sure how this works out. Um, so we started having this conversation about um, police and he has this kid in his class that, you know, for about a couple of years, will really tease him. And one day, Juice walked into class and this little kid was like going to all the boys and said, you know, you're a girl, you're a girl, this kid's a girl, this kid's a girl. And he gets to my kid and he says, you're a girl. And Juice goes, that's okay. Anybody can be a girl. And I was like, yes, 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 take that little kindergartner. I was so hyped. Because what happens is that in five-year-old boys, when they're already starting thinking about like girls have less value and it's derogatory to tell someone that you're a girl, by the time that kid is 30 and he sees a trans woman, and he's like intimidated or confused or angry and he enacts violence about that. Police can't solve that. We've already yeah. lost. We've yeah. lost. So yeah. it means starting with your five-year-old, your six-year-old, that's where the vision without police comes from. Now, all this other stuff that we do in the meantime, freezing police budgets, eliminating and reducing police budgets, trying to figure out how to freeze um, freeze hiring, don't build any more cop academies. Those are all the things that we can do on the way there. But it's gonna take it's gonna take so much more than just one person just being able to tell you like once one what is one alternative like mm -hmm. one dream for me that's coming true is i'm let i'm raising less patriarchal children less homophobic mm -hmm. children right it's about it's actually much more democratic for us to together think about that what that world is going to be like instead of relying on like experts to tell you you know we need body cameras when it's like okay we need body cameras to just watch them kill us is, right. is that is that what we need the cameras for right. You know, so the world without police ultimately is a world where we democratically are figuring out how to solve problems without relying on people who have guns and batons and pepper spray and mace and tear gas and tanks. Like, that's up to all of us. Yeah, I can't, I really can't agree with that more. Your child sounds much more mature than my child, who is a small police officer. Don't talk about him like that. <laughs> Zara loves him. I love him too, but he's difficult. But it really is, you see, when you, I think having children has been an interesting thing in part, for part, for this reason, because people told me when I had kids, I would stop. I would appreciate the cops more. I would appreciate prosecutors more. And I find that it's not a question of appreciation, but it is a question, like Derek has said, of imagination. When we talk about abolition, I mean, when we talk about defunding, which I think is, like Derek has said, kind of a step on the way to a new world, right? Not the only thing. And when we talk about abolition, we are talking about creating a different world. We are talking about creating a world where this sort of state violence and this sort of state presence isn't necessary mm -hmm. to 
impart our ethical and moral challenges, right? It, it's not necessary. We are relying on police to do all of the moral and ethical work in this country right now. When you teach a kid what's what's good and bad, you talk about, you know, or when some people teach a kid what's good and bad, it's what's illegal. You could go to jail. Don't do this. You're going to get in trouble. Right. It's not, we don't impart a good structure as a country about values that doesn't relate to punishment. And now I'm like giving my whole book thesis. So hopefully me and Derek's agent is not on this call. <laughs> to, to, but like you are not actually um, creating a world in which people understand what kind of world they want to live in without punishment. And we, we practice that in our everyday lives, right? I mean, when you think about crime. I mean, the interesting thing to me about crime and that really changed a lot of the way I thought when I found this out a couple years ago is just how little crime is even reported, right? Most of the ways that we handle um, wrongdoing in our communities is, is between people, between each other. And that a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have not engendered respect for the, for the, for the entire profession of law enforcement by their own that which is their own fault right and so you see like right now if my car got broken into i'm not calling the police right i like might talk to my neighbors to make sure they're safe i might like if i if i know who it is i might go to try to talk to them but like i'm not involving the police in what i consider to be my everyday disputes and that's 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 met by the fact that even the p crimes that are reported are barely solved. Yes. If you look at Baltimore right now, are you in Baltimore right now? I am in Baltimore. He's in Baltimore. Baltimore right now, they solve 25% of murders in Baltimore, 25%. So we're also paying the police to do a 25% job. I mean, that's the whole point that, you know, that's the first thing people say, well, what about murder? When you talk about defunding the police, well, what about murder? What about rapes? They're not solving murders and rapes. They're not. They're not handling, they're not doing. That's all that, and they're committing. It's right, like. Right, <laughs> right. They're also increasing the numbers of people. Yes, yes, it's, not, yes. it's not, we're not, whatever this is, right? People think, well, it's all we have, but it's not all we have to have. And the world in which, you, when you think about what is the world you want to see, which now is a good time to think about that. Now in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a very important kind of shift in electoral power, maybe, or maybe not, in the middle of, you know, seeing really what politically motivates people and how often it's racism and money. When you think about what shapes the world you wanna live in, it's not gonna be a back-end solution. It's never gonna be a back-end solution. It has to be front-end solutions. It has to be, um, how we think about our kids, how we think about our family, how we think about our friends. I mean, it really is fundamental. None of us would say, I would love for my friends to live in an overly police neighborhood. I want my friends to be safe and happy and that's what would make them safe and happy. Nobody says that. Nobody thinks that that is a full life, that, that is a healthy world. And so, you know, people, these words are scary to people defunding you know, abolish the police and they're scary. I like have talked to my parents about this. Like it's, they're scary, big terms, but it's not a scary world we're looking at. The scary world we're looking at is the one we have right now. You're living it. <laughs> it almost can't get worse than this. So you want to really think about what else, how else, if we have the bravery, the imagination, and like Derricka said, the will, what else the world could look like? Yeah. I'm going to um, ask a few questions um, from the Q&A, and I think, you know, a lot of this stuff is um, 
things that you've touched on lightly, but we do have one question, uh, and, and Derica touched on this earlier, but um, Josie, I, I know you've also talked about this, but the concept of, uh, this is a question from Destiny. I believe that prison abolition and uh, police abolition are linked. How do we explain to others that while we want accountability, cheering for the arrest, prosecution, and imprisonment of these officers is also legitimizing the carceral state? Mm -hmm. Great question. I know, I know you're obsessed with that idea. <laughs> I, Josie's, um, Josie's fully radicalized me in the last like <laughs> month of my life into being like, destroy all prisons. Like, like it, so um, I'm slowly getting on but you know, slowly working on everybody, evangelizing everyone. Yeah. I've, and Derek has taught me a ton. So I'm, it's all a learning process from each other. I would love to hear Derek's answer to this, but I will just say that like, um, I understand. <laughs> why this is complicated. I understand that when, an, especially a state actor kills a civilian, right? Just on like a government 101 level, you wanna see accountability. And I understand that these are the levels of accountability we have right now. I also understand that like, um, you know, Miriam Kaba talks about this and she's just like deeply mm -hmm. brilliant. But I, if someone kills my kid, like I might want them in prison. <laughs> I I might not, I might be able to have the like wherewithal insight to say that I'm not focused on punishment, but I can't promise that because I never, this has not happened to me. And so I also understand that when we feel anger and the need for revenge, like these are the systems that do, that provide that. And that right now, given the system we have, accountability looks like prosecuting a man for kneeling on someone's neck and killing him as he's yelling for his mom. I get that. So I don't think, these necessarily have to be directly in tension, but I do understand it's complicated. Derek, I'd like to hear, I'd, I'd like to know what you think about that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm actually gonna read something that I wrote, if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I wrote this when a Tatiana Jefferson was killed in, in Texas last year. She was playing a video game with her nephew when there was a door open a neighbor said I want someone to check it out don't go in or whatever police officer goes in and then opens fire this is not too long after Botham Jean was killed and so I, I wrote this so it's completely understandable why families and communities still want killer cops to go to prison in a society where the options for a killer cops seem like prison or nothing prison and punishment feel like justice. Even when we know a convention is unlikely, I cannot imagine being someone to tell a grieving parent, I know this is hard, but you need to think about systemic change and not the individual consequences of the officer who took the life from your child. Yet deep down, many of us also believe that prisons can deter police from violence. That if we send killer cops to prison, it warns other killer cops of their faith. But more police officers have been prosecuted in the last five years than at any point in history. And the police have still killed the same amount of people each year, sometimes even more. This logic affirms that prisons cannot keep us safe and keep more black people alive. Cops lie, but numbers don't. In Ferguson, we often chanted, indict, convict, send those killer cops to jail. The whole damn system is guilty as hell. You know, me included. But here lies a painful truth. We cannot rely on these guilty systems for our liberation. Police officers will rarely be found guilty if killing Black people is part of the job, like stopping frisks, like walking the beat, like jump outs, and even community policing. 
Rather, in these moments, I hope that we follow the traditions of organizing who seek to reduce the size of police departments and officers and their capacity to be violent. All of that organizing for the unlikely prosecution and ultimate conviction of police officers drains movements. It drains us because we put all of our eggs in that mm -hmm. one conviction basket. Like it, we should think about for us, for those of us who don't have to like be that parent, we should be thinking about, like I said earlier, how to eliminate contacts and encounters between the police and black people, which is the only definite way that we can stop them from killing us. Mm. And I give other examples, critical resistance, Oakland Power Project, Stop LAPD Spite. Um, spying, they organized workshops for people to have alternative to 911 calls. In Minnesota, that organization, MPD 150, reclaimed the block. All those groups, they successfully organized and after Jamar Clark was killed by Minneapolis Police Department to shift that money, shift a million dollars from the police to community-based organizations. Organizers in LA, they had a school district return all of their military equipment back to the federal government. Mm -hmm. Like organizers mm -hmm. did that. So it's possible, right? Mm -hmm. wow. So reducing the overall capacity of police officers to harm does not immediately, you know, answer the question of what do we do when a police officer kills someone right now people want to answer and it's unfortunate and it's inconvenient that just there's no just one answer, right? Mm -hmm. There's not just one thing. And then I quote Miriam Cobbin when she talks about Darren Wilson being, you know, um, his pending nine indictment in Ferguson. You know, she says something like, you know, it's not that I'm against indicting killer cops. I just know that indictments won't and cannot end oppressive policing, which is rooted in anti-blackness, social control, and containment. So in these moments, I'm going to ask everyone to do what they have been doing. Rebel. You have to constantly resist. You have to say no. Just don't put all of your eggs in that conviction basket. If you care deeply about, you know, policing, I think more importantly, if you care deeply about preserving life, not just Black people, not just Native mm -hmm. people, even white people who make up about 40% of police victims, if you care about preserving life, don't just wait until there's a viral hashtag. Don't just wait. Right. You have the opportunity to figure out how to join Cop Watch. You have the opportunity to figure out, you know, how do I really think about reducing police budgets and calling for some of the things we brought up on this call? So we can't just wait for the what do we do when the police is up for, you know, indictment. It's We have to do much more than that in the meantime. And like I always say, we have to build a democratic multiracial movement against all violence in the carceral state in this country. So it absolutely is intention, which is why I don't call for, you know, this officer should be, you know, indicted, arrested, convicted. It's I would much rather, and what I try to do is spend my time figuring out how to reduce all of that in the meantime. Mm -hmm. well, that's that's what I hope that people decide to do. Uh, Derek, where can we read what you wrote? Um, I have a hundred million people asking. Oh, uh, is is that? Let me... we'll, we'll, we'll find we'll find a link. But if you just tell us um, where that where we can read, you probably it. posted it. She's on. I did. I posted it on Facebook, but it's also oh, there. It is. Someone posted it. Oh, amazing. Oh, maybe yeah. never mind. Maybe it's from the guard. One of those pieces. Yeah, <laughs> one of those. <laughs> Uh, can I just say one thing about this that I think Derek gets at um, yes. really well, which is I, I want people to also keep in mind in the immediate future that when we talk about accountability in the system, we're also we're 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 regularly talking about the failure of a system to hold someone accountable when we know that that system is is 
not, does not have a leniency problem. So I talk about this a lot when we talk about the cops and when I talk about prosecutors in particular, a lot of the pushback you see against prosecutors over the past five years from progressives or the left or even the center is these prosecutors didn't indict this cop. They didn't punish this cop. And I understand that. Like, again, to Derek's point, like everything she just said, could not agree more fully on board. The problem is not that prosecutors prosecute too few people. So what I worry about, even as an immediate solution, is that when we focus on these systems, we're focusing on you didn't punish this person versus look at all these people you punished. Look at all of these people you're punishing day in and day out in this country without fail, without pause, in a pandemic, in an emergency, in a time of crisis, right? And so we, I don't want to, to at a very fundamental kind of statistical level, imply that the problem is that we're too lenient. We are too lenient against a couple of cops, <laughs> right? We're too lenient against this structure, but we're not too lenient against anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so when we when we shape the conversation around accountability to be, was this person punished enough versus are you over punishing, which is how you get 10 million people going in and out of jails every year, which is how you get two and a half million people in prison at any one single day. That's, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the system is doing every single day. And the two things go hand in hand, right? Obviously, if you are, if you are um, engrossed in the system of control, you are not particularly good at holding your own people accountable, but it is not the real issue here fundamentally when you're talking about numbers. And so that's a much more like, like, you know, that's a much more like spreadsheet point, but the spreadsheets matter. When you look at the numbers, like the like Mike Freeman has a lot of problems beyond not prosecuting cops, right? These DAs have a lot of issues between not prosecuting cops. And it's a really fair question about what they're indicting, over indicting versus what they're under indicting. Well, we are over time, but I want to you know, end with one more question if, if you both have the time, which is like, what is the, um, by the way, every, I mean, there's so many amazing questions and we could probably have this conversation for like hours and, um, you know, one day when, when Josie's a like visiting professor, I will go and Ooh, ask We're in trouble. <laughs> we're in trouble if I'm a visiting professor. I would love to. Um, but, um, we are going to be compiling all of these questions and, um, finding a way to, um, use them in the wing app and so that we have groups and we have a ton of members who are also experts in this field who can help answer a lot of these questions. Um, but, and also just encourage you to follow both Derica and Josie um, on their platforms. They t this is their life work. They do this every day and we're so grateful for it. But one of the things that I wanna end with before we wrap is, is what is the one immediate thing? I know that again, this is lifelong work and this is this is something that we have to commit to. And, and I, every person, that is attending this, we have almost a thousand people here. This is not something we need to stop talking about when these protests stop in a few months from now, when uh, quarantine ends, when we get back to regular life. Um, please keep this same energy. I know I, we say this every time, keep this same energy. Um, but what is the like kind of immediate thing somebody could do either today, this week, or in the immediate um, kind of uh, coming local elections, um, what are what are the things that people can do uh, to start uh, this work? 
I'm letting you start, Derica. Okay, I tell people to do three things that I stole from Robin D.G. Kelly, which is love, study, struggle. So you may think that you can use your common sense to figure out how to solve policing. You can't. No one can. It's, it's not intuitive. It's not a gut feeling. Just study, like study, like read the history of policing um, and don't do it alone. Like to struggle is to do that with with a group, with people um struggle with an organization you know hit the streets and then the love is take care of yourself and take care of each other so love studying and struggle if you want to know one of my bible one of my two of my bibles one is um freedom dreams by robin dg kelly it's a book full of imaginations though that book and then our enemies in blue is literally i read it literally like a bible when i'm confused like oh how come this thing didn't work in the past i go and read that book oh how come this thing xyz go and read that book so freedom dreams our enemies in blue i would say read that join an organization and then take care of yourself and your people i'll just say um i think those are all great suggestions i'll just say um put your give your money to local organizing groups if you can't join one or you don't join one or there's not one around you, like Derek said at the beginning, give your money, please. These people need it. And they spend too much time fundraising instead of acting because they don't have the resources that a lot of other places have. So when you give money to them, it makes a big difference. Um, the second thing I'll say, and this is just a uh, self-promotional podcast thing for me and Derica, but Derica and I did, she joined us me for a couple of episodes of our podcast, Justice in America. We have an episode from before when she joined us, um, from with, uh, I did with Clint Smith, with Miriam Kaba, who we've quoted a couple of times this, uh, this episode. And then we did, I think, I think the best one we did, Derica was probably the, um, the best interview we had was probably with, um, Daiwan and Wes, um, which, which is, I think episode 29. So, um, I think those are worth checking out. And again, I think, keep, imagine, like, this is, this is intuitive. This is really about what you see the world looking like. And when you can picture what you, when you can step outside of what exists right now and picture what could exist, an entire world opens up for you. Um, it's not, it's not too pie in the sky. It's not irresponsible. It's not unimaginable. It's completely, completely imaginable. It's just for us to do that work. Um, and I really appreciate everybody joining. This is amazing to, yeah. to hear people wanting to talk about this. So I, I just want to pause and say to both of you, um, thank you for showing up today um, as Black women um, and doing this work. And the fact that you took your time out of your mornings as uh, mothers and uh, you know, this is, I, I'm, I'm just in awe. And I, I am so grateful um, to the people who do this work tires, tirelessly, thanklessly. And if you do one thing today, follow these women, buy the books that they're gonna put into the world, um, share what um, they say with people who might not have even entered this conversation. Um, and, um, thank you. I'm so grateful. Um, and uh, follow them on Twitter, as I said again. Uh, subscribe to Justice Podcast um, and buy their books. Um, and so uh, thank you so much. And yes, we'll, we'll see you guys uh, on the internet. <laughs>